0: It's like if somebody had a a lost Da Vinci or something, you know, they don't want to let it go. I mean, there were literally cases where the collector had to die before we could get our hands on these recordings.
1: Hi, and welcome to And If Love Remains. I am your host, Mike Levitt, and we are here today again with Dr. Elias Axel Pedersen, um, and we have a special guest, uh, Mark Ainley. Um, Mark is an internationally recognized authority on the art of piano playing and historical piano recordings. He is best known for his work in discovering unpublished recordings of the legendary pianist is it is it Dinu?
2: I saw so yes, Dinu, that's right. Dinu Lipatti.
1: Lipatti. There you go, see? My my Italian's getting better every day, which <laughs> led to world premiere uh, award-winning releases of over 3 hours of previously lost performances by the revered artist. He has since um, he has, since his late, uh, late teens, authored CD liner notes and magazine articles on a range of pianists of different sensibilities, and he has lectured across North America, Europe, and Asia. His popular Facebook page, The Piano Files with Mark Ainley, is a hub for professionals and amateurs alike to explore great piano playing via recorded recording history. Ainley explores. Uh, explores, excuse me, explores how historical recordings can help today's performers and listeners better appreciate music written decades or centuries ago. In addition to presenting examples of piano playing that can be radically different than today's norms, and I'm extremely excited about this topic. I'm so pumped to talk to to Mark. Thanks for being on the show.
0: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Oh, it's, it's wonderful, and and I and and you know, I really want to talk to you. Um, about the subject matter, but but I, I'm i very interested, how does somebody get into um, historical piano recordings? I mean, that's kind of, uh, uh, you know, that, that's a niche.
0: <laughs> so- very niche, and it's uh, like many, I think, important things in life. Uh, it happened quite unexpectedly and synchronistically. Uh, I was, when I was about 15, I was learning Beethoven's 32 variations and was just looking around for recordings of the piece and couldn't find one uh very easily and went to the you know big record store downtown back in the days when we had record stores. Yep. <laughs> and uh it was in Montreal uh where I grew up. And so I went to A and I went flipping through, and all I could find was this European import record that was like ten or eleven dollars, which in 1985 was like a small fortune. And so I thought, well, you know, it's a European import, it's real fancy and everything, it's gotta be good. So I shelled out, you know, and keeping in mind that's probably like 30 or 40 bucks today, right? And I shelled out and I went home, listened to it. And I was like, well, this is a bit bland, actually. I was really disappointed in what I was hearing. And so I took the record to my piano teacher and she agreed. But so that raised one question, which is how are artists getting to record and they're actually not necessarily (laughs) great? And what was it that makes a performance great? Like why I could pick, I was you know still pretty basic at that time, and I was like, oh, I can I can recognize that this isn't quite you know on, right? So that was one thing. But then when I was putting the record away, my teacher made this offhand comment that just is what opened up this whole world. She said, "Wow, look how thin that record is. You should see the old records I've got in my closet." And so we go to her entry closet, and uh, she starts handing me box after box of these old 78s. And, you know, I'd had in my mind the image of, you know, big old scratchy records and, you know, gramophone horns and all of that. Right. Um, and she starts handing me one after the other. She's like, you know, I used to have an old record of Horowitz playing this, but uh, let's see if we can find it. And then she hands me this one album with these beautiful hands on the cover. And she's like, oh, look, Rachmaninoff plays Rachmaninoff. And I was like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. Like composers recorded. <laughs> yeah, you know and for me it was just kind of like oh everything classical all the composers it's like way in the past you know like I had no idea when Rachmaninoff lived and I actually didn't know his music uh you know at the age of 15 but what this woke up for me is like wait when did recording start mm-hmm. you know I had no idea if any of those old sort of scratchy wind-up cylinders had been done by Mozart or Beethoven or Chopin or any, I had no clue right on any of this. And then I thought, well, this is, you know, first of all, composer playing their own music, like what, you know, this is kind of amazing to consider. Uh, and I was like, you know, here I was listening to this piece by Beethoven played by somebody It's like, yeah, not that great. Right. And what just got me thinking, what's a good performance. And you'd expect a composer playing their own music that would be, you know, quote unquote authentic. Uh, so like many old turntables, the one that I had at home played 78s right the good old turntables used to do you know, 33 45 right. and 78 so I asked her if I could borrow the records and I did and I went home and was really surprised after you know the first record spinning fast I was like wait it just cut off in the middle of the music and like well, yeah because <laughs> right. I turn it over <laughs> 78 it's only you know four and a half minutes per side which means longer pieces had to be cut up into sections. Right. Uh, So I just, you know, did the pause on the cassette and, you know, hit it at the right time and sort of created this seamless flow, sort of my early DJ technique uh, sort of training there. And I was just listening and, I decided I just wanted to read about this, you know, because in the days before the internet, there were these things called books that you would get at these buildings called libraries, <laughs> and uh, where they also had records where you could go and sit in a room and listen in real time, because that's how you had True. to do it with no internet, and if you didn't own the recording or want to spend that much on it. <laughs> so, uh, so I just, you know, I got Harold C. Schoenberg's book, The Great Pianists, which became my bible, and he talked about a lot of old recordings and pianists who recorded, as well as what to listen for and so you know i took i wrote down all of these names of these great pianists and would go to secondhand record stores and flip through these records and i developed a really good finger technique for flipping through record stacks much better than i ever was at the piano Mm -hmm. but i was like really good at like flipping through very quickly and spotting uh, good recordings, so I started building up my record collection that way and I was comparing what I was hearing to what he was saying and training my ears to recognize the differences in performances and that's basically how this whole thing started. Wow, that's awesome.
2: I, I love hearing like going through some of the history of these people and just all these memories for for myself from learning things mm-hmm. are coming up too so mm-hmm. and I-, I think we're of a similar age too so I remember having to uh to borrow cd well cd's but i remember some early records and uh and tapes cassettes you know trying to record so you could listen to it on your own in mm-hmm. your walkman and Yep.
0: yeah it's, it's going go, yeah
1: waiting in the libraries for the for the recorder so you could listen to the right
0: <laughs> yeah and i remember the <laughs> totally and then you know trying to record everything onto one cassette and then it runs out of time yeah, exactly yeah. You, know, you know it's like people the, the kids nowadays will have no idea you know where they're shaking our fist at the sky you know. yeah the best
2: way to to rewind a tape you put a pencil in it and, and
0: <laughs> <I> know exactly. <laughs> we know all those tricks yeah yeah true. or a pen oh so anyway mike go ahead Oh
1: no! So, so, so how did that lead into, to, I mean, obviously you, you, that, that gained your passion that, 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 mm-hmm. that really drove, um, you know, where you are today, but how did that turn into, to what you're doing and, and, and um, um, you know, what, what kind of, what kind of was, was the next part of that process for you?
0: Well, what I just started, you know, listening to as much as possible, and you know, eventually, back in the days where you know there's pen pals, and one person introduces you to another, there, there was this kind of underground network that I got connected to, and I eventually got connected to Gregor Benko, who is founder of the International Piano Archives, who's the one who you know he himself back you know in his twenties. Uh, got obsessed with Joseph Hoffman, who made no commercial recordings after 1923 or 24, uh, but uh, tracked down these live recordings from the 30s and 40s and so on, and was issuing them. And he was an incredible support in helping me in my research, which then turned into... Uh, wanting to find lost recordings of Dino Lepati, who was this great pianist, who was revered by all of the musical elite of his time, but who died at the age of 33 of Hodgkin's disease um, and never left Europe, but his records were international bestsellers, just the three hours or so that he had recorded. And uh, after his death in like the period of 20 or 30 years, another three hours had turned up, uh, fast forward to now, I've added about three or three and a half hours as well uh, to his discography so that's incredible so back, back in the day i mean and, and and it was it is like a spy story like i mean we could do multiple episodes on you know just that whole story the way it's like if somebody had a, a lost da vinci or something you know they don't want to let it go i mean there were literally cases where the collector had to die before we could get our hands on these recordings because they wouldn't release them it was just it's, it's amazing so uh so I started exploring, you know, Lepati was a major focus, but I was really interested in a lot of these artists because it seemed like there was something different going on. There was a different sensibility to how people played. Right. And I became aware, going back to Rachmaninoff, you know, listening to his concerto in 1929 that he recorded and listening to recordings made in the 1950s, which was only, you know, 20-ish years later. And the playing was already different. So I was thinking, okay, so if playing has changed that much in a quarter century, then how far off the mark might we be with music that's 100 or 200 years old? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it how leads much into- is the same of broken telephone, in a sense, right? Where like yeah. generation by generation, all of a sudden, you know, we're, get, we're getting further and further off the mark.
2: Mm-hmm. It, this leads a lot to, I think, the historical movement or historical performance practice movement, which is really... Come into its its strength in the last thirty years or so,
0: mm-hmm. uh, and
2: that's going back to Baroque and, and classical eras. But you know, there's a lot to be said for it. There are things you know I might disagree with as well, and maybe maybe we'll touch on that.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: I, I just wanted to make a brief thing. You mentioned IPAM International Piano Archives, and yes. and I actually have a connection with that. But with the um, predecessor, no, not predecessor, the um, successor, the successor to to Banco, which is uh, Donald Manildi, yeah, uh, who's familiar. now been there. And I know you have a lot of contact with him. And I think that's also one of the ways I first heard about your name was mm-hmm. I was um, researching. I did my master's there. I was researching pieces and listening to different recordings. And he, I would go there probably on a weekly basis, and he'd show me a, a recording I'd never heard of before. Um, and and also, they got a lot of collections. I, I remember some of the stories, too. He would say, oh, I'm going up to New York to, to talk with a collector and hopefully buy one of these records for $1,000 or something. <sighs> And uh, and then he'd get it. Or I think they had a lock of Liszt's hair and I, I never saw it, but I heard <sighs> about it, you know, um, and and actually you mentioned Schoenberg, too, or Harold C. Schoenberg. When he died, his his CD collection was was donated to IPAM and and all the duplicates were were uh, available for sale. So I have about 200 of his old CD oh, collection.
0: Oh, awesome.
2: Yeah. I, I
0: but, mean, yeah, you know. go ahead.
2: No, no, I was just going to say, I think I got into some of the great pianists like Lipati, like Cortot, like, mm-hmm. like Hoffman, which I'd known about and I'd read about. And somebody like Cortot, where I just, I always said, oh, well, he misses notes, so he's not good. That, that's kind of what I knew about him. Um, yeah. And then I would listen, like, well, this is phenomenal musicianship. Um, and like the, the art of the piano video I remember watching, and Shandor, I remember talking about Rachmaninoff. He said, fortunately, you know, Rachmaninoff
0: recorded all his piano concerti. Unfortunately people don't listen to them today. Know, it's, it's such a fabulous quote yeah. <laughs> and his voice as he says it. And this is something that's really astounding. I think he's pointing to this fact that there's this incredible resource that's there and you know not everybody could you know I mean you're so lucky I've never actually been to Maryland to be able to go to see the archives in person. I've only met Manoli once when we spoke at the same conference, but you know we're, we're in regular email contact. but we have the internet now. Mm -hmm. It's just the click of a button to be able to access this stuff that I had to go, you know, digging around these second, you know, musty old secondhand record stores in Montreal when I was a teen and, you know, shelling out... Fortunately, sometimes just a few bucks for some of these recordings because they had no idea what the value was, and artistically the value is always way beyond dollar value, right? So that's one of the challenges. But I too, you know, when I first heard Corteau, I bought the you know, Chopin Etudes, and I didn't know her. It was the first set that I ever heard. I was like, wow, you know, there's quite a few clinkers in here, uh, and that's what you hear when you're listening to that one thing because our ears have gotten sanitized by, you know, incredibly clean recordings thanks to tape and digital editing techniques so that's what we expect and of course every performer intends to play all the notes Mm -hmm. but ideally every performer also intends to bring something musical to to the performance bring some adventure and bring some life and in those days they didn't care as much about a drop note or so because in the culture it was different in terms of what are you doing in the big picture and they didn't have the kind of editing technology that we have now and so you know there's it it was just it was very different so you have to train your ears to listen to corto and hear beyond the wrong notes and i can't remember if it was shandor or somebody else in that same documentary were saying even his wrong notes were fabulous yeah (laughs) Uh, yeah. yeah. and it's true they're great yeah. yeah
1: I think that I think that takes us to I want to I got a question I think this is a good place to to, to bring this in because I think a lot of our listeners might um, be wondering like you know what are you talking about as far as the the difference between how people played before and mm-hmm. and you know I think a lot of people they when they think of a pianist or they think of a musician they see they think of a guy there with yeah. music playing the music that's on the page and and that's what they're doing Hundred um, percent. and so let's talk about like today's performances versus Mm -hmm. before what were, what were they focusing on and why did you prefer them before?
0: Um, So in terms of you're looking at a page, everybody's looking at the same page, so to speak, if they're all using the same edition and that's another story, Mm -hmm. but you know, they're all looking at the same page, but similarly, every actor is looking at the same script if they're doing Hamlet and you're not going to expect every actor is going to intone to, or time to be or not to be in exactly the same way, with exactly the same emphasis. Mm-hmm. And it would be really boring if they did. But we somehow expect when it comes to music, perhaps because it's we have a different relationship with it than we do with the spoken word. And we understand the nuancing of spoken language differently because it's what we do every day. But musically, how it is that you perform is subject to a whole lot of variety, even within the confines of the same notes, the same notation, the same directions on the printed page. So Shakespeare, just by writing those words, he's not suggesting specifically that you should pause between these two words for extra emphasis and maybe make this word louder and so on and so forth. Now, some composers would put certain directions in the score asking you to do that. Uh, so there's two things to this. They didn't necessarily put everything in the score that they wanted you to do because some things were done at the time in the same way that iambic pentameter, you know, if you in Shakespeare, if you ever studied it in high school, which is as far as my Shakespeare goes, you know, you know, in terms right. of accenting, uh, but you don't actually really talk like that, that robotically. It's a general sense of pulse and rhythm. Uh, so you would still be able to pause and to accent and do things. And we allow that in speech. But somehow in music, uh, there isn't the, I think today, the training that there was and the sensibility that there was when people maybe had a direct connection either to the composer or to their lineage or the culture of the time when that was done. And a great example of this is Carl Friedberg, who was a Juilliard professor uh, until 1945 when he was unceremoniously kicked out who had trained with Clara Schumann the widow of the composer Schumann and also to whom Brahms had played through his complete piano music one-on-one and so you know Juilliard in 1945 who the heck wants this old fuddy-duddy right who you know who Brahms right. played his own music to, uh, which shows you a little bit of the shift of the sensibility of what was going on in the academic world and uh, and you know musical education. But there are recordings of him teaching the pianist Bruce Hungerford. And Bruce is asking him, he said, oh, but over here, you know, I, I was thinking I wanted to slow down a little bit, but he didn't put it in the score. And he's like, oh, no, he wouldn't, Brahms wouldn't put that in the score unless he really wanted you to slow down. Huh. But he slowed down when he played that for me. And he did that, and he says, you know, you don't change the rhythm, but you can you can accent something, or you can pause a little bit. So it all depends how much you don't don't change the note value, but you can change, you can stretch the phrase, and yet, you know, the word stretch still has one syllable. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: It lasts longer, so you can do things in a certain way, and there are parameters, and there is the parameter of you know what's good taste and what's not good taste, and those senses change. And this is where it starts getting complicated, because when we start looking at, uh, do we have to do everything that was done at the composer's time? uh, There's a lot of different directions we can go with this. What does that really mean? So so what does this mean? But here's one piece. So if you listen to old radio broadcasts or TV programs and movies uh, from the 30s to the 50s. You're going to notice that a lot of them are talking with a kind of voice like this, and they intone in a certain way, and they're all talking. There was something that was stylistic at the time, that that's the broadcaster voice, and that's the intonation, and this is the way they speak. And nowadays, if you listen to newscasters, one of the things I notice is that they they do this dramatic pause before the last word, and they'll, they'll pause before a certain word in order to create a little bit of emphasis. And what's interesting also is that musically, that's what I would refer to as nouveau rubato, which uh, rubato being that stretch of the musical phrase where you hear pianists nowadays, they think that rubato, the way you stretch a phrase is just by pausing before the last note of the phrase and then just drooping down and getting a little softer with it. But it all it deflates like a balloon. There's no actual uh musical tension or projection of the line that takes place that way. And it's completely formulaic, just like the 1930s speakers are it's it's a formula, and the news announcers today, that's a formula. And music shouldn't really be formulaic, I think. But the challenge is that I'm speaking to here is how much do we go back to what was done at the time in terms of that was done at the time. But is that, is the music limited to that?
2: Yeah. Um, I, I had a quick thing that you brought up about the pause. When I hear Baroque ensembles from the last 10 years or so, mm. uh, it seems like the the habit is to go, you know, um, and I'm like, why, why? That's so, that doesn't make sense. But they, they argue that's what was done. And I often like Baroque uh, recordings from maybe 50s or 60s, even though there are some mm. things that aren't done. "Quote unquote" yeah. correctly, um, yeah. so that's one thing. And, and another thing you uh, you brought up was, um, you know, uh, the style of the time and trying to match that. Obviously, we have we have different ears. Mm-hmm. You know, we have different uh, sense of time nowadays. Anyway, the internet, you know, things are just moving faster. And we've Mike and I have have spoken about that too. That our ears and our culture is a little bit different, uh, so that's hard to, to reconcile. Uh, And thirdly, you know, you mentioned that Friedberg, he studied with, I think, Clara Schumann, who is, by the way, a composer, too. So she would have had a direct line to that mentality and, you know, phenomenal pianist. So Mm -hmm. it's not like she would have had technical difficulties, I don't think, uh, and would have had to make musical sacrifices. So I think what she would have said would would really hold some water. Uh, But then the question arises, are composers the best interpreters of their work? Uh, and sometimes I would say yes, sometimes I would say most definitely no. So yeah. what, you know, those are a couple of things. Uh, I wonder if you could
0: talk to some of that. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge topic because, uh, of course, it depends on their capabilities. And Friedberg in one of those recordings says, yeah, you know, Brahms did a couple of things that for me, you know, I, I didn't quite like. Mm-hmm. And that's absolutely fine. And you know, but we we revere these people so much and put them on pedestals. So we think, well, how can we say that? Yeah. And I can guarantee you that some of the same musicologists and music teachers who say we should respect the composer's wishes and we should do justice to the composer, and these are, you know, and the composer's intention, these are all catchphrases in our current musical culture, that they would actually probably be quite horrified if they heard the playing. And these are the same teachers who will listen to some recordings by pianists who knew Brahms like Ilona Eibenschutz and Carl Friedberg and so on, and say, and one of them did say this once on my Facebook page, oh, that sounds dated.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: Which I said, yeah, I know. So's 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 the music she's playing. It's over 100 years old.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: And so, you know, when's the last time you went out and had a wild night? Sort of a wild night of Mazurkas and Waltzes, right? I mean, this is—it's we are living in a different time, right? And, and not to speak of Intermezzi and Ballads, and you know, it's not the same musical time at all. So when it comes to composers uh, playing, yeah, it's great to know what their intention is, and all of us have intentions. And there's all in any great work of art. There's something that exists that's beyond your intention.
2: Yeah, it's a fine line, I think, between what. Um, is subjective feeling and and taste because you have to, you have to study that and refine it and um, develop that. But but yet, who's who's developing that? That comes from your culture and from your teachers. And um, I mean, there, there's kind of an esoteric philosophical question there, which I don't know and if we'll I, ever answer.
1: And I think I think also we're we're it's it's almost like we're all um reading in latin in other words it in some ways it's a dead language from a standpoint as we're trying to you mentioned mazurka like you're right who who's doing mazurkas these days and yeah and and i watched a a video with you where where you had and i and i apologize i don't remember the name of the the pianist you played a mazurka that was unbelievable and i would never heard it that way before it was just and i'm like well. Maybe it's because
0: I don't know what a mazurka is. Yeah, Ignatz Friedman. Yeah, so, I and, bet.
2: I was going to say he's
0: the best. <laughs> and yet, there's other amazing ways of playing it. So, to give a little background to our listeners, because this was again something, and I couldn't fully develop it in that video because it was a you know a sh- short introduction.
1: And by the way, I will put a, a, a I'll put a link to that video in the awesome. show notes if anyone wants to take a look at. It.
0: Awesome, thank you. Yeah, so Ignatz Friedman uh, grew up in Poland, and he danced the mazurka, which is a folk dance. That Chopin then, you know, incorporated elements of that folk dance into his piano music based on that form. And Chopin himself, the way there's a, there's documentation that he got into an, a, a quite a heated argument with the composer Meyerbeer uh, when he was Meyerbeer walked into one of Chopin's lessons, and he was teaching someone how to play a mazurka, and he was asking him to pause and accent the rhythm in a certain way. And Meyerbeer said, Well, that's two four time. And Chopin said, No, it's three four time. And so the, there's a limitation to the notation and what can be put on the page. Right. And if we don't walk in there you know, in, into a musical you know, period of study or into our relationship with a score, understanding that this black and white text is like a blueprint, but we live in homes that are beyond a blueprint and they're more dimensional, then how are you going to bring that to life, right? We are more than skin and bone. Uh, you know, we've got skin and we've got muscles and there's blood flowing through and so on. And how do you go to the skeleton of the score and bring something to life. So there was very little, there was a limitation certainly in the 19th century for how he could communicate the kind of accenting that he wanted. And Friedman having danced the mazurka as a kid was aware of that sense of rhythmic beat and propulsion. And so in 1930, he recorded a dozen of them and they uh, are exactly the kind of playing that would, uh, cause a lot of academics to run screening from the room because it's just so completely unconventional to our ears. They're not unconventional to Chopin's ears. And this is the issue that I think when we have uh, somehow there, I think there's an implicit bias that we somehow think that what we believe to be true is true and that what we like is actually the standard. And rather than you hear something that you disagree with or is something you haven't encountered before and you say, well, that's weird because it's not like what I've heard before. So what? Why do you think that what you heard before is the standard? Why do you think what you already believe is true? Like it's great for an operating principle to get you to where you're going. But are you saying there's never any learning, that there's nothing else for you to to expand your horizons with, that the composer might not have known something Uh yeah, and
2: stand standard isn't the same as good or right either. Yeah. Um. So it's just what we're growing, and I think this leads to. We've talked many times, Mike and I, about the the virtues of studying a certain piece or getting in depth or music in general or whatever you want to say. It could be our our type of music, you know, Western European. But mm-hmm. but just getting, uh, I think it opens you up to, um, if if you have good training and if you're willing to in the time and, and search for these things. And of course now it's at everybody's fingertips, but I don't know if that helps. I, I think the fact that we dug around for them made it that much more appreciable. Uh and mm-hmm. we appreciate I, right. I loved like finding these things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But you know the so the the thing with that again going back to Friedman and then you know looking back on how did compose you know a composers' interpretations, because I didn't really fully answer that question. Um you know we know that Friedman is doing something in his Chopin Mazurkas, that it sounds like, based on that testimonial of a real-world event from Chopin's life, that he was aiming for, and it doesn't mean that that's the only great way to play Mazurkas. And Mazurkas were not just danced in the countryside; they were also, you know, done more elegantly and formally. Yeah. And uh, Jan Smetterlin heard them. Uh, great Polish pianist. Uh, he heard the Mazurkas in both settings. As well, yeah. And he doesn't accent in quite the same way, but his sense of timing as well is very different and it's fascinating. And then you get Marilla Jonas, who recorded a handful of mazurkas in the 1950s or late 40s and early 50s. And it's just some of the most incredible mazurka playing ever. And she's not doing it quite like that either. And it's wonderful. So it doesn't mean that this is the only way. And that's the important thing, I think, as well with composers, that you hear Rachmaninoff play his second concerto, and all of them, uh, and they're fantastic. And that's a recording of Rachmaninoff at one time Mm -hmm. playing that. uh, And it's great to hear. And it doesn't mean he would have played it that way another time. And he also liked the playing of other pianists who played those works differently. He liked the playing of Mazaevich and and Horowitz and and, uh, and a host of others and Gieseking who played Rachmaninoff's third concerto at almost half the tempo, such that Rachmaninoff's wife walked out after the first movement. And Rachmaninoff went and had this great conversation with him after the concert. And and he apparently had really enjoyed it, even though that wasn't his quote-unquote vision or intention. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we know, I think we imagine that, you know, we're, we're trying to do the right thing. And I think musician and it's a worthy aim, you know, this doing justice to the composer and the composer's vision. But if we read about the composers as people and their relationships with interpreters and what happened, we can get some insight, like Beethoven, uh, hearing his Appassionata Sonata, played for him for the first time by Marie Bigot, who taught both Mendelssohns, and saying to her, "Well, that's not quite what I had in mind, but uh, you know, yeah, go ahead. That's great." And he gave her the manuscript. Yeah, I think working with
2: composers today is is enlightening,
0: and I, mm-hmm. um, I, I mean, it's a
2: double edged sword because there there's such a proliferation of styles and differences uh, in this mm-hmm. generation and even the last. And I've I worked with a few living composers, and I've had a couple, uh, you know, dedications, and and uh, it's funny, even playing one piece where a composer. Uh, might say, oh, it's maybe it's not my best. I mean, they're usually self, very self-effacing and, and pretty humble in my in my experience. And and then when they hear you play, that they're usually pretty open about it too. I've I've rarely met composers. I mean, I never met Boulez. I've heard of or Stockhausen. I've heard of their their reputations, but um, I I haven't worked with composers that are so rigid that mm-hmm. you know, like anything. No, that's not that's not why what, envi- what I envision. Yes, I've, I've worked with some that it's, ah, could you get this kind of, I'm aiming for this color, and okay, now I understand a little bit more, and maybe they couldn't quite notate it, but uh, usually they're, they're quite happy just to have their works performed and have the, the music get, get out there, because once you hear it, uh, it might sound different than it does in your head, uh, and it, it starts to coax things out of you as well, and, and it develops them as musicians. So I think most composers are pretty open to those things and we ha- we kind of have this idea this rigid mindset or i think it's more projection than anything that that all the composers of the past only wanted it one way totally. and uh, and they always played it that way of course beethoven didn't play his sonatas the same way all the time in different absolutely cities.
0: and there's there's evidence of uh... I forget the name of who it was who was in London and asked Beethoven, you know, he was going to perform some of his symphonies. Would he please send the metronome markings? And then the letter never arrived. So he wrote back to Beethoven and said, Would you please send them, you know, the letter <laughs> to arrive? And then the first letter arrived. And then the second letter arrived. And the <laughs> metronome markings were different. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, what, what does that say? But there, there's a lot There's a lot of stories about this. And Rachmaninoff is actually a good starting point to talk about, first of all, what we hear on record, but also uh, that uh, authenticity, quote unquote, in the score. Uh, George Bollette, great uh, Cuban-born mm-hmm. uh, pianist who then moved to the States, uh, he was studying in New York and was uh, at, I believe it was in Philadelphia, where they were first rehearsing uh, prior to the first performance, of uh, Rachmaninoff uh, in his Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini. Uh, Rachmaninoff, keep in mind, of course, when he's writing a piece for piano and orchestra, doesn't have an orchestra in his studio, right? So he's writing it as he as he, as he wants to. And he, in this read-through, he's realizing that things sound different than he expected and conferred with a conductor, and they changed some things in the score. You know, that score which had already been published and printed. <clears throat> And was never republished with those changes, mm-hmm. which then made it into ballet score. And he would tell his students, you know, decades later, well, so much for the UR text, or text being, you know, the official, you know, printed edition with uh, that the composer, you know, with all of the composer's indications and no one else's. So uh, I th- I think that's kind of insightful that even prior to the first performance, let alone what might he think about it five years later or ten years later, or twenty years later.
1: Uh, well, so there's lots th- of evidence of, of composers mm-hmm. revising stuff years later.
0: Yeah, and there's a recording of, uh, which I put a very brief excerpt in uh, that video, of Raoul Koselski right. playing Chopin's you know, famous Nocturne Op. 9 Number 2 with all kinds of extra runs and ornamentation and, and little things that on the record it says with authentic Chopin variants it was recorded in 1938 when Mikuli when sorry when Koselski was a child he studied with a pupil of Chopin's uh Carol Mikuli who had apparently heard Chopin play it that way and took notes down now Chopin played it that way that day and might have played it differently again another time uh and if you were to do that now you would probably be taken round, you know, to a firing squad around the back of the building because you can't do anything to the text, even if the composer himself might have done that. So uh, it's it's quite instructive when we listen back and if we really look at all the evidence, not just the evidence we want to look at, in terms of what composers' attitudes were towards their music and how you know what they would have been de- deemed as authentic. I think, like you were saying, uh, Elias. Uh, a lot of them are just happy that their music was being performed. And I am pretty convinced that most of them did not think we would be playing their music a hundred or 200 or 300 years later.
2: Yeah. I think even with Chopin, you know, we've, we've discussed this before when there are different uh, editions of it, you know, he wanted to make money. So he might've sold one thing to a German publisher, <clears throat> another edition or his student would have sold an edition with random notes from Chopin uh, to a, an Italian or an English or a whatever French publisher often and so we often get a couple of versions coming down to us. And one of them, I mentioned the third sonata, which I performed, there's a French Messonnier edition, which is four years or three years after the original original mm-hmm. quote, quote, German edition. And it's got a couple measures that are totally different harmonies. Huh. And when I first heard a recording of that piece, I think there are two now um, extent recordings with that uh, version in it. And, mm-hmm. and I thought the pianist just had a memory slip and, and played something wrong but then was really good at improvising and came back you know on the oh. track uh, and then I I saw in the notes in the it was on a YouTube video and somebody's mentioned oh this is the 1849 meoni I was like wow what I have to find that and I've only found a, a you know manuscript version of it but uh, then I included wow. that when I performed it um, awesome. but, well yeah that was one thing there was something else I thought uh, while you were speaking of
0: well, it'll come back to me, but go ahead. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's just so much to this, right? Uh, well, coming to Rachmaninoff again, and if we take a look at, uh, you know, the recordings, and we expect that their recording is then a fixed document. Now, somebody like Carl Friedberg actually resisted making recordings, and I think he made one, he made his only recordings when he was 83, because he didn't, he didn't appreciate the concept of one finished interpretation. Uh, that there's only one right. final version and that's your recording of this and that's the way it should be done which is you know the complete antithesis of Glenn Gould's whole approach of you know you spend all this time in the studio and working and you create this this one version which is your you know your testament to that piece of music which I 100% appreciate i think it's, i think it's absolutely valid
2: it's an artistic
0: um, uh, vision or or yeah, and it's a statement, and you and you produce that, and then it can get be repeated, you know, enjoyed and over and over, and it's 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 brilliant, you know. So yeah, why not? And you know that is one of the reasons why Friedberg didn't record. Now Rachmaninoff made a whole bunch of recordings, like ten CDs worth, uh, which in the days of 78s was you know a pretty hard hard process. Um, but there were a lot of people who said that his playing and record was different than his playing in concert. And it's also documented that he refused to allow his concerts to be broadcast, which is why there actually isn't pretty much anything of him in uh, in concert performance. What just came out a few years ago on the amazing Marston Records label, uh, uh, there's two incredible things of Rachmaninoff. One of them is him in Eugene Ormandy's living room in December 1940, a couple of weeks before the... Ormandy was due to conduct the world premiere of Rachmaninoff's symphonic dances. And Rachmaninoff was giving a run through at the piano of, you know, his vision, how he wanted it to be played. Uh, And it seems he was being recorded without his knowledge because the sound is quite far and so on. But you hear him playing with way more passion. And, you know, this schmaltzy phrasing, and he's singing along with it as well, and you hear his voice going up and down, and it's way more passionate than what you hear in his studio recordings. So <clears throat> he, like many artists, might have treated studio recordings as a temporary thing. This gives people a chance to hear the music, they get to hear the performance, you know, uh, not that he was only into commercial things, but that's one of the things that guarantees that people are going to like your music, hear your music, go hear, go to your concerts. Um, but it wasn't a replacement for the live performance, and that's why he refused to allow himself to be recorded in broadcast.
2: Yeah, although there, I have it, to say, with Rachmaninoff, I find that a lot of people with him, or even somebody like Michelangeli, and and occasionally huh? with um, uh, with um, oh my god, the uh, Italian Polini, that yeah. they say, well, they're they're cold or they're playing is austere. And I, I don't find Rachmaninoff's playing cold at all. I just, yes, no. it's very steeled sometimes and steely yes. and, and driven, but boy, there's a lot of passion in there. It's just
0: restrained passion. It's more, yeah, I know. And there's something to that, right? And Mosevich would yes. play, like, I think, a little less, uh, you know, he definitely patrician is one of the words that's often used, and but, but not with the same steely, you know, steel fingers with velvet gloves kind of thing that we hear with Rachmaninoff. But it's still like pretty like off the wall, like off the charts kind of passion that we hear when he's uh, playing in Ormandy's living room. I mean, it is really a whole other level. And I I had a a preview of that. I did the promo video for Marston and I literally woke up in the middle of the night, two nights in a row to have to listen to it again because I, I was so completely flabbergasted by what I was hearing that it's like, you are like a fly on the wall in this private situation, hearing this great composer playing completely uninhibited, And it wasn't meant to be captured, but it was. And it does reveal a different sensibility and makes you wonder, okay, you know, like we don't discount his commercial recordings, but recognize for any of these artists, because a lot of them said this, that what you hear on record is them on record, and it's not them in concert. And we, I think in our current cultural uh, time, we tend to think that a concert is just like a recording, but in person. Right, right. And it is, and it's that they should play the same way, and it should be just as clean and just as sanitized, and you know. And when you look at how recordings are made, where and where microphones are placed, I mean, I don't know what this whole situation is of you know sticking a microphone inside the piano where your head would never be, and underneath, and all around, and uh, as opposed to just you know a, a pair of mics placed appropriately the way your human ears would be placed, uh, capturing and then reproducing. Like you listen to 1950s EMI recordings. Uh, those are, I think perhaps the most incredible piano recordings in terms of sound quality ever. And they, not, experience. Yeah. Yeah, and, and they were not sticking, you know, the microphone into the piano. So people have gotten this skewed perception of what the piano should sound like and what, Live performances should sound like, and then you go to a real concert and say, like, oh, "Well, the piano sound is—it's further away, and I can't hear it in the same way, and it's not not as good." And I'd rather listen to a recording, and I'd rather hear the right notes and not hear people crinkling you know, little cough drop wrappers and stuff, which you know, of course, none of us would like. Although at this point, you know, a year into COVID, a lot of us would yeah. just like to be at a concert anyway. Right, <laughs> right, you right. Can you please get there? some of that? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I think that we have to recognize that artistically as well, the record might still be. A shadow of what some of these musicians did in concert. And we know from, you know, Myra Hess's statements and some of her live recordings, uh, Maseevich as well, Lepati also, uh, you hear these artists in different circumstances and sometimes you hear something really quite different. Uh, so I think that ties into also there isn't necessarily just one way for any person to play a given piece of music or in general. And I think if we're, if we don't have the sense of aliveness and evolution and shifting our interpretations and the styles and the reality that performers are human and might play differently. And, you know, it, it all gets very complicated and musical performance is not, I don't think it should be rigid. And this is, this is the, 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 the part, the underlying issue to all that we're talking about. And where, and I think you mentioned about asking the questions, you know, there's a lot of questions here and we don't necessarily have the answer. And I don't think we can necessarily arrive at an answer. And our culture is not good at asking a question and letting the question be there. Be unanswered. An answer. Right. Yeah. And, uh, but I think when it comes to artistic matters, we need to do that. And we need to let the stuff marinate. And that's what happens when you marinate, you know, you leave things for a while to sit. And, and it's okay them... if
2: they're never answered, you know, there are philosophical questions yeah. that, right. that will cycle through the ages and different people will have different ideas. And that's okay if they're never quite answered because the, oh. the importance is the question itself. You know, it's, it reminds me of uh, Hitchhiker's guide. You know, we, we know the answer is 42. We just don't know the question.
1: <laughs> right.
2: so exactly. Asking the question is very important and makes you think and, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, contemplate these things and, and grow yourself. Um, And I think we need a little bit of a little dose of that these days with, you know, you you mentioned before something that, that made me think what's, what's the the definitive thing. And these days we're, we're looking for my, my vision or my idea is the definitive one. It's the standard. Yeah. Well, maybe in your small bubble in the culture, it is, and maybe you're also misinformed or you have just different data that you're going on, or you're not looking, you know, there are so many aspects of life that could be enhanced and improved if, um, if we were a little bit more open thoughtful introspective questioning and, and understanding of others i think that comes through through music um mm-hmm. so and i think seeing well, I it think through a... the eyes of all these composers and pianists is, is very helpful uh,
1: go and ahead I think, mark. as i was just going to say and i think um as well and i'm curious about your take on this mark as well um, you know what what would you say maybe to a a young artist a young pianist who who you know wants to, wants to create their own artistic vision, um, you know, but maybe, maybe feels a bit confided or, uh, or, uh, you know, constrained locked, yeah, constrained, locked in to, to the, what they've been taught. Um, you know, how can we open people up to, to these ideas?
0: Well, I think the first thing is to listen and to listen to a lot of different performers playing and not, <clears throat> you know, I used to have my preferred approach, right. And LaPatty was the mute musician who really appealed to me because he had a he had a more objective stance and it was very clear and the way he plays it's very architecturally clear but it's also uh you know there's still plenty of emotion and there's a the, the, technically it's it's absolutely masterful yeah but I came to appreciate a lot of different performers and i just did a uh, I did a recorded a program where I featured 12 different pianists playing the first movement of beethoven's moonlight sonata uh, with timings ranging from four minutes and one second to seven minutes and 25 seconds. Mm -hmm. And every one of those performances is fantastic. Mm So I, uh, the issue is when we come, Oh, that's the one, that one's better. That one's better. Sure. It might be better in different ways, but what if there's no better? What if there's just all of these wonderful ways? And then if you listen at the very least to a variety of interpretations and start to figure out where your personal sensibilities lie, you can have a very, all of your reasons can be perfectly valid as to why you like one more than another. Uh, and I recently uh, guest lectured at a, at a class at UBC here in Vancouver uh, online and uh, played excerpts of three different versions uh, just from that first movement. And the three people who spoke up each liked different ones for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. I, I wonder That's a good. couple things if pedagogically
2: uh, that that could run some risks of just, you know, a 12 year old that just doesn't have the, the yeah. experience. And the, yes, you know, listen to these 30 recordings. that they won't even be able to pick up
0: some of the things. No. So So I it It depends at what age we're talking about. So I wasn't definitely speaking about twelve year olds, I was thinking more about people who are at the university level and an advanced level. So I think though that you know, it's like anything. You you learn structure and then you learn how to relax with the structure. But you need the structure first. Yeah. Right? So I think so too. uh, so I think that you, you you need to and you need to learn how to follow the rules, and you need to learn that you know what you, this is. You you pay attention to that. You do pay attention to the score first, actually, because that's all we have to go on first, and then we learn. Okay, so how do you feel about this? Mm-hmm. One of the issues, though, comes from when a teachers are teaching a student to feel a certain way, but it maybe isn't how they feel, and this becomes challenging because then the teacher is actually teaching them to lie. Yeah, in, yeah. In their musical that's, performance, because that's not I, actually how they feel. But, I think the,
2: asking uh, questions is important in teaching the kind um, of Socratic method
0: yes, totally like why did why did you do that not as apparently in a video of a famous teacher doing master classes on Beethoven sonatas and somebody he said, why did you do that He said because I thought it sounded better and the, you know this famous pianist teacher was absolutely apoplectic that somebody should do something that they liked <laughs> uh, you know and it's like, Really, maybe that's why I don't like your playing that much because you know you're not actually bringing anything personal. And the, unfortunately, the two have become dichotomized now. So it's either the score and for the composer, and you, the performer has to become invisible, or it's the interpreter before everything, and they have license to obscure the composer's intention. I like to say it's really, it's more of a dance that you have to be on the dance floor and you have to meet each other. And how is it collaborative and how does the interpreter bring, uh, their perspective truthfully, not based on ego, based on, well, I can do what I want because I'm a performer. Um, that's not it at all, but you still have to have something behind it. You have to have some intelligence and some training and it ideally, some understanding of the culture and a little bit more background. Uh, Edwin Fisher uh, was a great pianist who he made the first ever recording of the Bach Well-Tempered Clavier in the 1930s and was a great uh, Beethoven interpreter. And he wrote in his book on Beethoven sonatas that uh, he himself was an avid gardener. And he said, you can't just have sterile soil. You need bacteria. Like you need to bring something alive. You need to create the conditions so that something can come to life. Mm-hmm. And if you, you have to show up to the score where you have this raw materials and you have to bring something into it to, to bring some life out of it. So ideally it's not injecting into it per se, but you're drawing something out of it, but you have to show up. Yeah. So, but if you just show up and you say, well, I feel like doing this and I'm just going to do that's, that's not it either. That's, yeah. That's not it.
2: I, it's interesting. You mentioned the Moonlight Sonata, the various interpretations when, when I was doing uh, pictures at an exhibition and you know, mm. uh, we, we've had a few podcasts on that. And I did that for my thesis and looking at the different uh, versions at the time, I, I, mm. I listened to many of them and some were extremely, you know, Pogorelich was on the the, the end of extremely slow i think his version was 40 43 44 minutes overall and horowitz who cut one of the middle promenades his version was 26 minutes so almost twice the time uh, mm. for this this piece how can you have such disparate views and uh you know taking somebody like pogorelic who i think is is a genius in many respects and i i think is playing when he was i would say in, in his peak form right after he won and mm. even for many years was is phenomenal um But then I've heard him do things where it's just so stretched and drawn out. And I think, are you doing that to be different just for the sake of being different? Or do you really have an artistic vision that matches? Because it does not...
0: It, it, when you stretch it that much, it just does not seem to fit the music anymore. And this is unfortunately, you know, what's happened. Uh, I think in general, with it, you know, people who, for people to stand out, that that's kind of what they need to do. I've been saying that uh, actually about pogorelic since the '90s. Uh, that uh, I, I thought he was taking the individual thing just a little bit beyond. What it was i was comfortable with and right now it's a lot beyond because yeah. i think it's just these lugubrious tempos that's not that's just you doing what you want and not yeah. it's not really serving the music so yeah. um, it could be
2: something that's slow that i think the mu- music lends itself to different mm-hmm. interpretations. so for one of my classes i played the uh the two i two of the iconic versions of the scarlatti sonata the b minor the michelangeli version which is always you put out there. It's on the documentary, the Art of Piano, and then the Gillels version. And the Gillels version is approximately half the speed, mm. but uh, it's it's beautiful, and it's a totally different take on. Maybe this is more vocal than than uh, pianistic or <laughs> well, mechanical.
0: You're, mm-hmm. But you're also bringing up something important because you know when we talk about speed, yeah. uh, that's one characteristic, and if you don't listen to what the person is doing with speed. We we're we're missing the point, because uh, sure he's doing the, the you know they're, so they're each playing at, at their speed. It's part of the equation, but what are they doing with their tone? What are they doing with dynamics? Right. How are they pedaling? How are Shaping, they phrasing? Yeah, there's right. all there's all of that stuff. And what happens when we talk about that rubato, right? When they're stretching a phrase, this is what most people listen to, and they will listen to old recordings and say, "Oh, well, you know, listen to how they're doing that." And I actually had a university class where a couple of the people piped in because they thought they thought Rachmaninoff's rubato in Chopin, in the same Chopin Nocturne, Opus 9, Number 2, was extreme. You know, he, who was born less than 25 years after Chopin died, and whose music these same pianists play, uh, thought his rubato was extreme. Uh, <laughs> to which I said, well, you know, if you, what if you heard a recording by Chopin and you didn't like it?
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: exactly. What, do you,
2: what do you think about, uh, because I know Wim Winters has been, Vim Winters, right, has been on this program, and he talks about the... Um, the metronome markings a lot. Do you have mm-hmm. any any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, that's that. Uh, it's definitely a controversial um, stance. I think. Uh, again, and you don't
2: have to answer it, or it doesn't have to be definitive. I'm just curious because yeah. Mike and I have discussed it too, and I. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So again, getting back to what I was talking about tempo, because this will tie in. You know, uh, when it comes to rubato, it's not just how they're adjusting it, but it's like not just adjusting the time. What are they doing with the dynamics? Are they getting louder? Are they getting softer? What are they doing to tonal color? Is it fading? What is it, how is the color changing? How are they pedaling? All of that is part of it. So if you limit something, and this is you know something to consider with uh, you know this fellow who says that all the metronome markings uh, should be done at half speed from what we think. Um, well, what else are you bringing to the table? Mm-hmm. Are you playing it with beautiful tone? How are you phrasing? You know, tempo is not... The only thing, speed is not the only musical characteristic. So if that's all you're going on, then you're missing a lot. The reason when,
1: the, the, the four minute uh, Moonlight Sonata and the seven minute Moonlight Sonata isn't because of the tempo necessarily, it's because of of yes. how it was played.
0: That's exactly it. And so it's only because Solomon knew how to pedal in a way where he could create this haze and this hypnotic effect where you have this haze, but you don't lose any clarity. So he created this magnificent effect. So he could do it at 7.25 when other people playing at that tempo, I would be asleep within within the first 10 seconds because it's not working and there isn't the beauty of tone. There isn't the the skilled use of balancing voicing. Uh, Do you accent notes similarly on repeats or not? There's all of these other things that happen. So when it comes down to what I would describe as – Legislative ethics musically. <laughs> like, this is what you have to do because this is the right thing. And if you don't do this, then it's wrong. As opposed to what's really appropriate? Mm-hmm. What, what's really the right thing? Like, if it's the right thing, you don't need to tell people to do or it. Or what's the difference between good and right? You yeah.
2: know, maybe it's good, it's not right, but it, it works. Um, yeah. The other thing you mentioned is that Beethoven in the orchestral rehearsal, you know, he sent two or three different metronome markings that i'm sure they were quite different and the conductor was confused uh-huh. uh, may, maybe at the time of composing i'm thinking of hammer clavier which does have the quite yeah. metronome marking. at that time he had some vision i mean he was already mostly deaf by then this is opus 106 so he thought, okay, I, I want this to kind of move and be lively and this and that, and maybe he didn't think of the other tonal considerations that he would have had he played it himself or listened to it or whatever. And maybe years later, he would make that metronome marking
0: slower. We, we don't know. And maybe, what, like, what stage was his deafness at? Um, how, and just the very simple, the simplest answer, right? Uh, maybe his metronome was off. I mean, was everybody's stopwatch like, you know, it wasn't like nuclear powered kind of like everybody's like watches set to exactly the same time. Right. So the whole, you know, Mission Impossible synchronize your watches situation. There's there's no guarantee that whatsoever. And it's the likeliest explanation is that his metronome was off. And how would he know? Because what are you comparing it to? Do you have a stopwatch where you're like sitting there and counting and making sure that your metronome is set properly? That's the easiest explanation.
2: Yeah. Also, so, just, uh, uh, I think there was uh, somebody that discovered a, a tuning fork from Beethoven's era, or one of his tuning forks that he used later in life, and the the pitch is is quite higher. We think of the, you know, oh a a four thirty two back then, or even four twenty right. something in the Baroque era, but it, it's four forty something now. Maybe some of the metal could have. Um,
0: have no! Right. Right. Like, again, the, the pianos from Beethoven's time weren't 200 years old when he was playing them. So, you know, we listen to those pianos now. Well, these, I, they probably didn't sound like that because they weren't 200 years old. So uh, so th- there's all kinds of things where we simply can't know that I think that we have to have some degree of musical sense and what's musical. So really, in the sense of, you know, tempo or whatever interpretation and timing you take, and, and you know, that Chopin Nocturne, Opus 9, Number 2, Rachmaninoff plays it in five minutes, and plays it in four, which is a twenty to twenty-five percent difference, depending on you know whether you're mar- you know measuring up or down, with the with the speed difference. So it changes the nature, it changes the mood, and both of them are great, and both of those moods can be totally faithful to the heart of what Chopin was doing, and we know Chopin was trying to imitate coloratura sopranos because the concerts he invariably went to were concerts of singers, and so. This is the bottom line. Like if you don't think contextually, then you're missing the point. Right. Is the phrase at a singable tempo? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If the voice, the voice that's is the most. Tempo, yeah. that, that's, that's what it is. So how would it breathe? And how were any of these composers trying to create this voice? And with an orchestra, it might be a much bigger than human voice. Mm-hmm. And so here's this power. But how is it communicating something? And also what's the emotion that's in there? Right. And so presto means fast and there's going to be some lively and vivace and so on. So if you take that down to half of the speed, sorry, but it's not presto. It's not vivace. So for me, that theory goes out the window. Mm-hmm. So uh, and you're saying that no fast music was, was ever was ever written, which yeah. I think is, is not true.
2: Well, unless you bring something else to the table where it's like, how about articulation and fast and dynamic changes and then yeah. it will sound fast, then I, I, I could, yeah. you know, buy it a little bit more.
0: Right. For sure. But again, it's not a hard and fast ethical, you know, this is, there is only one way. This is the one answer. This is the one rule. And this yeah. is where I say also that, you know, these historical recordings are a starting point for this conversation. But they what they give us that other written testimonials don't is an actual experience to hear the performance, the actual air that they were breathing, that they were in the room
2: yeah, because right. if if you listen to um not Lamond, what's the um, uh, Frederick? You'll remember his name. Very old Chopin player, but one of the first that recorded etudes. Um, uh, oh, uh, Robert Lortat. And I, uh, not him, because he's a little too obscure for me. But somebody mm. pretty famous, and and I think of um, him recording, let's say, in the nineteen thirties, and he would have heard people play it that that either knew Chopin or you know, studied with Chopin. So, so, well, Francis Plante. I don't know if he's Plante. The one who- that's it. That's it. Francis yeah. Plante. And so, so he just
0: like- a few. He recorded just a few A twos and some other works. what about an hour. So he was ninety at the time. It was nineteen twenty. Yeah.
2: yeah he so born- he's he's already playing them maybe slower, but they're still quite fast. And. Uh-
0: QWERTY, well, agile for his age, so yeah, he was also ninety. So you know, he's not going to play Opus it's ten number as- seven or Opus ten number eight at the same speed that he would have done fifty years earlier. So that is where you know, if you again, if you don't take context into consideration, then you know, there's you can't bring musical insight to to the conversation because you're missing the big picture. So I, I think that that that's part of it. But then you listen to him play Opus 25, number one is absolutely yeah. gorgeous. And even Opus 10, number five, he's very agile yeah. uh, for somebody who was 90, you know, and 90. Let's also keep in mind in 1928, somebody who was 90 is more like 110 now, right? right? And 70 was yeah. old. Back then, and you hear a lot of pianist 70 who sounds, you know, in worse shape than Planté did back then. Uh, you know, and he exclaimed in rather colorful, uh, a colorful French word at the end of his recording of one <laughs> of those pieces yeah. because he was not playing uh, quite to his uh, desired with his desired uh, flexibility. So we can't take again all of those, you know, everything that somebody did on record as their final version, we have to look at the context. We have to know how old was this person and when was this one and what conditions and so on. And what what are they trying
1: to say? I I think, and Elias and I have talked a lot about this as far as there's also the audience to consider from a standpoint of you know, the the audience that that listened to Rachmaninoff in the 30s is not the same audience that's gonna hear Rachmaninoff in 2021 it's going to be completely different They, they, they've heard, and, 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 and not just, not just culturally, like, like, you know, they've, they, they've, they've heard rush along with, you know what I mean? But along mm-hmm. with, but, but, but also just, they're used to hearing it in a certain way. And I'm not saying they're used to hearing it in, in the correct way or the right way or, or, or anything. But mm-hmm. what I'm saying is that they're used to hearing something that is in a certain way. And so when you listen to a rock, it's almost, you you can't turn off that, you can't turn off that bug. It's it, it, uh-huh. it, it's it's done. It's it's cooked into you the. Can't unknow it. it. Right, 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 and uh, and I think that's a whole other aspect to this this that that we're discussing here is is the audience the the um, the consumers of this music the the Mark Ainleys of the of the mm-hmm. world that are listening to this you know.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the fact is that we've, <clears throat> as individuals, already from the beginning, we're going to have our own inclinations and our own preferences. And then there's, you know, what do we learn and how do we listen to more? You know, my tastes have changed mm-hmm. and I like certain performers more now than I did before and other ones that I liked more before, you know, maybe I don't like quite as much and that's all fine and it's part of the process. So I think if, it, if it's, you know, if we stay too static and too rigid, then we're also missing out. And so uh, I think one of the interesting things though is to consider, you know, why do, why do we like things a certain way? And what if, what if I did hear something that was different from what I liked? And if I had to argue, if you were forced to argue, what's what's one or two or three great things about this performance that actually might be uh, different from your taste? If you can find it, you're starting to open up your ears and your minds to different ways of doing things.
2: That's the and idea think, in debates. If and and I love this. Like name one thing you like about your opponent. You know that that's very useful and very helpful because it brings people close. You look at similarities instead of set of differences i have kind of a big question and it's a bit of a subjective one and you can go not just either way but both ways on it and mm-hmm. and then one thing i'd be curious to get your take on the overall picture is we have a lot of recordings we can't not have them anymore uh, and what's the is it useful is it useful to have many recordings and all of this access at our fingertips has it or has it ruined um, live concerts you know i would say after this pandemic the the need for live concert concerts and interaction is even more obvious and i think people have seen what it is to have a dearth in um, in culture and cultural experiences uh and and also nowadays things can be tampered with and things can be um and be copied so precisely i i just watched a documentary on art you know and the whole the whole art world which is sort of um I'm talking about the very, very high end stuff, which uh, is sort of a racket and sometimes tax haven-ish. But um, you know, people can can copy that now. Now we have photocopiers. Now, what mm. what's the point of having an original painting? What's the point of hearing a, an artist play in concert, especially if you're going to hear candy wrappers and if you're gonna if they're going to mm. miss notes? Um, so is, it, is it useful to have the recordings, or is it more detrimental? What are the pros and cons? And then maybe your take on the Joyce Hatto scandal, just very briefly, because you probably have a bit more or you have a lot of awareness of that. Uh, Mm -hmm. I know maybe we can end with that sort of
1: discussion
0: yeah so yeah lots of i mean gosh all all of these topics i mean it's a great conversation because we we can we could be talking about all of these we're definitely
1: gonna have to have a part two i think yeah that
0: would would be awesome uh so recordings versus concerts i mean they're they're not the same thing you know it's not the same thing if you are in the same room in real time with the instrument with the actual sound waves coming out of the instrument Mm -hmm. in the room and it's something never to be repeated Uh, You know, I'm I'm taking actually a Yale University's course uh, online, uh, the science of Mm well-being. And one of the things that's fascinating is that uh, what brings people more pleasure than the things that they spend money on is the experiences. Mm -hmm. And there's tons of data supporting this. Experiences are intrinsically more valuable. And one of the things that makes them more valuable is the fact that they disappear. And that there's a finite end to it. So I think there is something too, if you think back in your life, like all of the, you know, what are some of the meaningful things that have happened and, and so on? A lot of them are probably going to be experiences. Yeah. And if it was from a thing that you bought, it was the experience with the thing that you bought. Like me buying, you know, Joseph Hoffman's Casimir Hall recital and finally finding this and then sitting down in my parents' living room and listening to this Waldstein and wondering if somebody had uh, put something psychoactive in my drink because I couldn't understand what I was hearing. Mm-hmm. And I still remember where I was in the room and looking at the speakers and seeing his face and thinking, "What is going on here?" Because this is completely different from anything I'd imagine. So there's the experience of that that stays, and I think the experience of the concerts—I have a number of them where I can still remember—and that was, you know, the, that in the moment magic. And the issue with recordings is we can have that experience over and over again, but it's also neurologically there's a the reality; it's not the same when you listen to something a second or third or fourth time. It's not right. the same as the first time. It often but, gets worse. It, it, it often, but not always, sometimes you can deepen your appreciation. And there are recordings that I've heard you know, dozens, if not hundreds of times. And my appreciation has, you know, still, it's the still there or it has deepened. And so, uh, so it's the problem again, comes down to either or as opposed to both and. Yeah, uh, I, I, I think, think that's
2: cultural too. When you talk about experience versus a thing, I mean, uh, my generation, maybe, and I, I'm not, I'm a generation X, not really millennial, but I think millennials spend more, uh, mm-hmm. on experience than on things in my generation and certainly the boomers spent more on things and uh, that was that was just uh, I think product of the time as well um, for sure so that
0: yeah but um, but the Joyce Hatto. so uh, yeah. actually before I get into Joyce Hato um, you know so I, I don't think it's either or I think but I think recordings have been consequential, and as much as it's kind of my thing, because I'm mm-hmm. you know we can listen to people like Friedberg and Ivenshtetz and Hoffman and Rachmaninoff and Corto and all these great musicians who we can't listen to live because they're dead. Yeah, you know it's obviously done a lot of good and still yeah. does a lot of good and can continue to do a lot of good if people use them use it correctly. Well. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I do think, however that recordings probably precipitated a shift in our perception of music and what music is, mm-hmm. because it did turn it into a product, which, you know, there's always been commercialism in music. You sure. can't think just in 20th century. I mean, this was happening in Chopin's time and Liszt's time and, you know, Paganini and all of, you know, and Paderewski is, Paderewski had more uh, endorsements than Lang than Lang. Lang yeah you know so it should be it should be known that this is not just a new thing that pianists endorse products so uh but i think they did shift things to people being able to hear themselves objectively which can help but it also i think leads to this whole notion of you know what is correctness and what is a permanent statement and our relationship with things being permanent versus ephemeral Mm -hmm. and uh And we've lost some of that capacity, especially given our time of multitasking where we're looking at too many things. How many of us actually sit and listen to a recording now and do nothing else? You're not scrolling on your phone. You're not reading a book. You're not doing nothing else. Uh, I think the forced focus which of course you know you can drift off asleep and start imagining you know sort of thinking about school projects or whatever else you want to think about when you're in the concert hall (laughs) just because you're there access to external stimulus doesn't mean your your mind is going to be focused but the invitation and the setting is one that's designed to focus purely on uh, experiencing the music in a never-to-be-repeated moment. So I think that, uh, I, I think we need both. Uh, I've been enjoying shifting to, you know, and practicing now because I'm, I've become well aware of this. Uh, recently, I've been focusing on, you know, listening to a recording and doing nothing else. And it's, uh, it's harder these days, because we've trained ourselves not to do that i still remember certain experiences like i said you know hearing hoffman uh listening to recordings back in the 80s and 90s i remember the specific experience of listening to a particular recording like that's kind of amazing and we we can continue to have those experiences so i, th- I again i prefer not I to like take it. the either or i think we really yeah. need the and the recordings do have tremendous value yeah. uh and i think you know Live concerts, we need, to, we need to do it. And we also need to push ourselves past our boundaries. I went to a concert in Vancouver, which I wasn't going to go to. I went to the pianist's masterclass. And I was a pianist I'd never heard of before, Andrea Lucasini. Mm-hmm. And oh, his yeah. masterclass yeah. was so phenomenal that he could precisely articulate exactly the step that that student was capable of taking take their playing to mm-hmm. the next level not what they really needed to do like big pick that you could instantly hear the change in their playing i was like okay i need to hear this guy in concert mm-hmm. so i went the next day and you know what turned me off initially was he was alternating these contemporary pieces with scarlatti sonatas going back and forth and i was like eh, you know it was fabulous mm-hmm. it was wonderful and it was you know i bought the cd and i don't sit and listen to the cd so much really it was that that ex- concert yeah. experience mm-hmm. was fantastic, and I wouldn't have gone if I hadn't, you know, I, I pushed myself outside of what do I normally want to hear? What do I think I want to hear? Yeah. So I broke yeah. past my comfort zone, and it was a marvelous experience. And I wrote as much to the impresario because I, th- I think that this is unfortunately what happens. We How many times... You know, we're, we're going to hear go hear the same Beethoven sonata or yeah. Schumann and Seinen and, and such and such, and they're great. But you know, Schumann wrote lots of other great stuff, and there's all kinds of other Beethoven sonatas that are very seldom played. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I, I, it's 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 a challenging question, and I think we really need both, and we really need to support music and have musical experience. That's you know, every, everything that we now love was once new, and there was a first one at one point. So really, it's about how do you give yourself that experience of something new over and over again? It's, well, you you don't go continuing to listen to the same music in the same people necessarily or the same situations, right? So you you start opening up to more. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Joyce-Hatto scandal to highlight uh, for folks who won't know, because definitely piano collectors know about this, There was a series of recordings that were released on a British label of a that a man said he was he was recording his wife at their home studio and she was sick with cancer but whenever she was well enough they would record her and these recordings were getting you know achieving quite a lot of critical acclaim Um, and I mean tons of recordings I mean there were just masses and they were just cranking them out Mm -hmm. and uh, I actually know a lot of people who were really close. To the situation, yes. yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> including, including the fellow Jed Disler, who entered, put the CD into his computer, and iTunes recognized the recording as being of a different pianist but
2: see that happens with me all the time with even my it, CDs. It still
0: happens, that's so. right it still happens but then he compared and he's like well you know some of the speeds were a little bit different so the guy was adjusting the speed of them and he was doing some kind of tinkering and changing the acoustics but essentially he was ripping off other people's recordings and I actually know just an FYI that that was uh, the recording of the trans- list Transcendental Etudes. I know the pianist, I knew the pianist yeah. He's now passed away whose recording they'd ripped off Laszlo oh, Simon wow. was uh, living in Tokyo when I was living in Tokyo in the 90s and uh, I met him in 1995 and I have an autographed copy of the original CD that Joyce Hato had uh, you know that her her husband had ripped off so uh, more and more investigations were done and it was found that basically all of the recordings were forged now Alan Walker who I've heard you refer to for his his Chopin biography and his list biographies he used to work at the BBC Uh, And was responsible for producing pianist broadcasts in the 1950s. And he said that Joyce Hatto never passed any of the BBC auditions. He remembered her. Wow. Wow. So she wasn't good enough to broadcast on the BBC. So, uh, you know, she she had a case of nerves. She might have been a fine pianist, but again, this is something that happens. People are human. They can't always, you know pull themselves together to be able to perform under certain conditions, which is why some people like, you know, Glenn Gould preferred being in the studio and he felt more free there. Other artists feel better in the concert platform than, you know, in a studio without people and a red light going on. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so it's going to be different. But uh, what the Joy Sato scandal was fascinating because uh, some of it was, you know, there was a marketing story Mm -hmm. that was really appealing, you know, that somebody was... Uh, She was sick, and she was playing at home, and da da da, and and that that seemed to color people's perceptions. Well, they wanted to believe it. Yeah. And I mean, the playing was great, but it just it wasn't her. But the unfortunate thing that happened, and this also shows, and people will use this to uh, to denounce critics. And, you know, there's, again, you know, the truth is more middle ground, that some of the critics who had given bad reviews to some of the recordings that Hato had ripped off
2: gave a good had review. given
0: positive reviews to when she played it, but it was the same recording.
2: Yeah, just altered, so, yeah, yeah.
0: But, but... Again, two points: it was altered, so it wasn't the same recording in a way. Uh-huh. And when you're listening to things in a different circumstance, uh, you can hear things differently. So you might hear the same recording on different occasions. You know, I now have an appreciation for recordings that I once didn't. Like I named about, you know, first time I heard Cortot uh, playing Chopin Opus Ten Number One, I was like, Ah, come on, what's yeah. with all the clinkers, right? And then I, yeah. now I love it, and I wouldn't give yeah. it up. Yeah. So, um, so it was it was interesting because it showed you know, it it showed it revealed a number of things. But it, uh, I think that it is true that we're, um, you know, what we see, what we hear, what we're told can impact how it is that we hear. And in fact, Dinu Lapati, the, the pianist who, uh, you know, I'm, I, I devoted so much time to, you know, the, the predominant story that was told. In you know record and CD booklet notes was how sick he was, and at his last recital he couldn't play the last Chopin waltz. And oh, you know it's just like this Hollywood drama. And he went and he played this you know Bach chorale, and then he died three months later. You know, and uh, that colors how it is that you hear his recordings, mm-hmm. and then you hear his one Ravel performance. Yeah, um, where what Alvarado de Gracioso, where he just tears the piano, like how there wasn't blood on the keyboard there, okay. is you know, with, with this glissandi that what he's playing, he just rips it to shreds. And I was like, well, hold on a sec here, folks, because he wasn't always sick, obviously. <laughs> you know, when you listen yeah. to this, and but I'd heard people say, oh, you know, yeah, Le was a bit of a lightweight uh-huh. because they had this perception of based on what they heard, his last recordings were made in a small studio on a short, possibly on a shorter piano. And was his uh, less tiring program, quote unquote, as he called it, because those were the works that he played to sort of be able to play when he was sick. So based on that, they form a perception of who this person is. And so, you know, we base our perceptions based on an artist recorded repertoire, like Edwin Fisher recorded Bach and Beethoven. Well, he's a Bach and Beethoven and a Mozart pianist, you know, so he wouldn't be playing Chopin and Mentner. Sorry, folks. But uh, Mettner said that the best performance he ever heard of his second sonata was Edwin Fischer in Paris in the 1920s. Into the 1950s, Edwin Fischer was playing Chopin sonatas in his programs. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I think of Claudio Arau as, when he was older, playing some of the late Beethoven sonatas, maybe slowly and uh, Mm -hmm. lugubriously, but just beautifully. But then you hear versions from the 1920s of his Islame. And it's like, holy crap, like what a, what a technique he, that he had. Yeah, he he wasn't even- this old man.
0: No, exactly. And he he went through this whole change as well. You you start to hear the shift more in the late 40s into the early 50s. But you listen to stuff in the 1920s, it's very, very different. Mm. And even more so, there's a film about Liszt that was made in South America, in which he literally acts as uh, as well as playing at the piano. And it showed up online literally a year or two ago. And his playing there is like this, like the best around that I've ever heard. It is so passionate and volcanic, and it's just like unlike anything of him in record, even those early recordings sound flat compared to what he was doing here. So this is the challenge that we you know, we we form these perceptions of who these artists are based on sometimes a single performance or a few performances, or, you know, maybe just their studio recordings that we haven't heard them in concert and we're, we're limiting. And it becomes the same thing for any piece of music that I've heard three people play this. And this is the way I like it, but you know, you haven't heard X, Y, or Z play it and you might be missing out. Yeah. So it's uh, like it's,
2: actors get pegged for certain roles and then it's hard to see them in another role.
0: Sifra right. uh, you
2: know, Cifra was known for his list and only playing list, but his Scarlatti and Bach are some of the best just I've ever heard.
0: Say, I am just going to say, and that's actually when I, when I, if I ever show uh, Tsifra Cifra at the university, what I do is I start with a video of a Scarlatti sonata. Uh-huh. To show the sensitivity and then i play the video of the list sixth rhapsody where you see his his hands are moving faster than is humanly possible and yet you're watching it happen (laughs) it's like how is is this happening right so that you get some context so you don't just think you know he's this circus freak as people tend to tended to think and you listen to him in lyrical passages i mean he's phenomenal phenomenally sensitive artist so he has absolutely been miscast and i know from relatives and people who knew pianists, how, uh, you know, Stefan Askenazy was really annoyed at being typecast as a Chopin pianist and he listened to him play Beethoven in concerts, marvelous. Malkazzynski's daughter told me about how uh, her father, because he was Polish and was famous for Chopin, how he hated being typecast for that and how when he dared, quote unquote, to play Bach in recital, you know, I remember when he was learning this piece, he remembered he was, you know, trying to go against this 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 stereotype. So, uh, well, some people
2: I think use that as a selling point. Now you hear a lot of. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, it's it's the foreign pianists that's always looked towards. So if somebody's coming to town, oh, they're from Italy, they must be great. It's like there are plenty of American. I'm, I were in Arizona. Plenty of American group pianists that are great. Uh, oh, he's Russian. He must play Russian music well. Well, maybe yeah. not. It-
0: <laughs> yeah, this stuff, this stuff drives me crazy. And in fact, you know, uh, there, there's no doubt, like we were talking about, for example, earlier, Ignaz Friedman and Jan Smetterlin, right? Having experienced the mazurka and also knowing the inflection of the language, you know, there's definitely some insight they can bring But if you're only relying on your genetics, if that's it sorry, that actually doesn't do it. And there's plenty of people, there's plenty of Polish pianists who, you know, are maybe famous for their Chopin. I think it's completely dull. And many Russian pianists who, uh, you know, maybe they're famous for the Rachmanov. they're not necessarily bringing the same thing to the table that somebody else could. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Again, we can get into all kinds of discussions about what happened, you know, with the iron, the iron curtain of sound that they, the, some of the post-war <laughs> sort of Russians bring to their, you know, which is completely different than actually this, the style of playing from, um, from, uh, Rachmaninoff, from, earth, yeah. Right. Yeah, from that period and Mosevich. So, uh, so it, it, you know, it's, it, it's, it does become a selling point. And in fact, in the 1940s and 50s, uh, in, in London. Uh, all of the foreign pianists; it was only their last name that was used. So, if you look at uh, records and uh, and concert programs, you see Mizevich, Malkojsinsky, Pushnov. It was you know, it was just their last names that was used. So it's like, ooh, you know, this is a foreign right. artist, and even though all of them were like living, in, you know, several of them were living in London. In London, yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, that was that was the big selling point. Yeah. But there's more. There's much more to it. And it's for sure, the, the culture can be part of it. But in terms of typecasting, uh, just to mention something also that you know people are now able to access so easily thanks to the Internet. Bartok, even in his lifetime, was being so misunderstood that he himself was telling a pupil of his who was playing one of his sonatas, could you please play it a little less Bartok-ish? Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> no, yeah because words, the percussiveness, you know, he was very vocal also. also-
0: Please stop banging you know yeah, and yeah. Prokofiev wasn't bang his music and Stravinsky didn't yeah. bang his music they were playing it like jazz but you listen yeah. to Bartok play Chopin yeah. there's a recording of him uh, a radio recording and it's unfortunately the the last part's missing that it's uh, Chopin's Nocturne Opus 27 number one and it is one of the greatest recordings of anyone doing anything mm-hmm. and you know, the thought of Bartok playing Chopin is mostly, you know, enough it's like something that would make most people's brains, you know, uh, explode because it, it, right. doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute. It is the most incredible thing. And when I've played that at university classes, that the teacher as well, I mean, the magic in the room that filled the room, and it was just the, everybody's jaw simultaneously dropping yeah. at what they were hearing. It is so completely outside of our expectation. And I think we really might consider, again, if we could hear Chopin play, if we could hear Beethoven play, there might be stuff that's just so completely different from what we expect. Yeah. And, you know, drumroll please, you know, we might not have liked all of it. But I think we might be willing also to then revisit. And I think that's the main thing that I think people should do in listening to any of these recordings, at least revisit why your preferences are your preferences. I'm not saying you have to change them. But consider why you like a certain style of playing, why you like a certain approach, and what if this, what if that.
1: Well, and by listening to those, it forces you to ask those questions. Like like once you're, you're confronted with something that you don't like, you have to then ask, well, why? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. what and it's it hard.
2: It's hard to do. Yeah. I know a lot of professors who are and I'm glad we haven't had to mention names of anybody yet, mm-hmm. whether we like mm-hmm. or don't like. And it's great. Yeah. But, you know, there are a lot of people out there who are comfortable and been teaching for a long time. And, you know, they have a certain idea of what something should be played like. And, you know, that's that's it. And if you played this Bartok recording for them, maybe they wouldn't
0: change their mind. Well, OK,
2: so you know, I've developed right. what I've had for 50, 60 years. And that's that's how it is
0: yeah but, and and you know and it's unfortunate because you know there's a reality that of course everybody's justified to have their tastes and you know when you've done something for a long period you know absolutely why not you know sure. you can have that. but also if you're not exposed to anything it's like you know imagine not opening your windows for 50 years and yeah. getting some air <laughs> in the room yeah. you know so uh so how do you, you know what are you breathing in you know it's, it becomes you know increasingly toxic and less there's less freshness and circulation and why are we doing this to begin with and what were the composers wanting to begin with if we're going to look at you know really prime intent Is they were just, I want my music to be played exactly the way I want, or was it like, I want people to have an experience, and I'm communicating an experience, and there's emotion in there, and the emotion with that rigid, ethical, rigid, you know, that prescribed sort of must, should kind of, you know, uh, dogmatism, I, I, I think those are largely incongruent. Uh, so which is why, again, I've grown more flexible and I'm not with the, the attitude that, you know, we must play like Rachmaninoff wanted or we must play like, you know, Ilona Iben or, or, uh, Carl Friedberg or any of the people in New Brahms, you must play Brahms that way that, no, you know, gosh, if you're going to say that you want to do justice to the composer or their vision, at least listen to the pianist who he coached. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You know, otherwise you're just lying. You're not being truthful to what it is that you say and revisit why you believe that your attitude is correct and your perspective is correct. And it might be perfectly valid because again, taste, right? There's a lot of taste. And so, you know, some people are going to like the pad thai at this restaurant. Some people are going to like the pad thai at that restaurant, right? Yeah. And it's going to be different. And You go to Thailand and you're going to taste a lot of different kinds depending yeah. on where you go and who, who, the, who, the, who the chef is. And when you were a kid, you went to your friend's home and his mom made hot chocolate and her hot chocolate tasted different than your mom's hot chocolate, yeah. even though it's all the same ingredients, and same with chocolate chip cookies. It's all the same ingredients, but it would be really boring if there was only one one tasting hot chocolate for the entire planet to be enjoying, or one kind of chocolate chip cookie, and nobody's allowed to have any different kind, any different balance of sugar or flour or you know gluten free or not or whatever. And so, um, and, and can I also add if is, if there as an
1: evangelist for the arts and for music, and, and, and I know you are too, you never know which performance is going to touch that one person that's going to change their attitude towards great music. And, mm-hmm. and I, and I always am, am, you know, I'm hesitant to be to be too critical because I know that somebody's favorite recording, you know what I mean? And, and mm-hmm. that, that's the, that's the thing that got them to love. And I think it's important that, 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 mm-hmm. um, you know, we understand that, 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 that that particular like we talked again about about the the moonlight sonatas those different versions of these moonlight sonatas who knows who's going to touch the one that one person is going to make them love that music again for the first time
0: yeah i mean and that's really what it's about is appreciating you know technically we're appreciating that piece of music we're appreciating beethoven appreciating the piano appreciating all of music like there's a whole lot of different levels and worlds that open up and whatever that performance is or recording is if it speaks to that person that's really what counts mm-hmm. and so this is where i don't want to also prescribe you know if somebody liked a recording that i don't like and i think even if there's unmusical things in there are things that i wouldn't you know i don't want to use the word approve of but you know what i mean right. uh, you know i i just i wouldn't recommend that recording they love the recording they love the music they're enjoying the music fantastic great yep. you know and maybe also consider this as opposed to just, well, that's the only one I'm going to listen that's to. Right. That's, that's right. That's, that's, that's just, that's just not the thing in the same way that I'm not dissing what they're listening to. I would say, well, you know, just open try up some to others. That.
1: Yeah. There's some that, Right. There's some other options. You know, we're, we're talking to Mark Andley and, and uh, I just, I'm, I am thrilled. This has been such a joy and, and we definitely need to do a part two. If you're up for it, Mark, we'll, we'll have Absolutely. to do it because this has been it. so fun. And I think there's, we're, touching the surface there's a lot we, we can mm-hmm. discuss with this this is um, all deep stuff yeah oh it's it's big stuff and and we didn't even get into any any of the recordings so we're gonna have to do that next time too but uh <laughs> mark for people who want to support you who people want to follow you what's the best way that they can do that
0: uh so my website is thepianofiles.com. Uh, on the top right corner there's going to be all of the links to different social media so Facebook is the uh, the most active interactive site where there's you know there's 10,000 subscribers but of course due to algorithms it's you know a couple hundred regularly participating but there's lots of conversation and I share a post there daily uh, on my patreon page uh, if you want to s- support, uh, me, uh, by becoming a subscriber, there's a uh, previews to certain, uh, articles and YouTube uploads and, uh, audio recordings that I'm programming as well and recording. Uh, so you can become a subscriber there as well and get some previews to some of my content, uh, over on Instagram is kind of fun. Cause they posted a little historical photograph of the artist of the day who's been posted on the other, on the other sites as well. So, uh, yeah, yeah. And those websites would be great.
1: Please, please do that. Please check those things out. Support uh, Mark and the great work that he's doing. Um, you know, Elias, thanks for, for putting this together. I, I can't, you know, I'm grateful for you and, and your uh, support of the show. This has been wonderful and and, and help get, get Mark on the show with us. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for a while, so. awesome thank you and
0: it's it's wild because i think it's uh this is actually the first time we've talked in real voice speaking like old school even though through new school technology and we've known each other through facebook for for quite a few years and we know a lot of uh we have a lot of mutual friends on there as well so it's uh i'm glad this happen.
1: all right good times well this is mike levitt and you're listening to and if love remains